on deck on Turning the Corner. The Athletics' Cody Stavenhagen and co-host Kieran Steckley break down a successful start to the 2021 season for the Detroit Tigers. And welcome into another episode of Turning the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Kieran Steckley. With me is Cody Stavenhagen with The Athletic. We hope everyone had a safe and wonderful Easter weekend, aided, of course, by some wins by the Detroit Tigers over the Cleveland Indians. Cody, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. Yeah, it's been a uh, busy few days at the ballpark, but um, especially when it's not 31 degrees outside, it's, it's pretty nice to be back in the park, be back in the press box, and, and get to watch some baseball that actually means something. Baseball that means something. And also with the with the knowledge in your back pocket, Cody, that you and, if I do say so myself, me, are profits. Because what do we talk about before the season? We talked about manufacturing runs, setting a tone, hitting against the shift, using Michael Fulmer to be a closer, that stuff is either happening or looks like it could. We saw some prophecies unfold this weekend, which was, uh, you know, as Fulmer was just throwing a lights out inning out of the bullpen, I was just kind of smiling. Someone sent me a, a, a picture on Twitter, you know, like a meme they had made and it was like your team trying to come back. And then a guy looking over his shoulder and it was like Michael Fulmer becoming 2002 John Smoltz, which is the exact comparison I made on this podcast last week, saying it was ridiculous, saying it probably wouldn't happen. Watching Michael Fulmer, I was like, oh, this guy looks like 2002 John Smoltz right now. Like, let's, especially if Soto can't throw strikes, let's throw this guy out there in the ninth inning. I uh, saw Jamer Candelario with some real nice hits against the shift, which credit to him. What did I say? Just go the other way. You know, I know it's easier said than done, but if you're a big league hitter, I want to see you hit to the opposite field. Jamer Candelario, two hits, um, just like that. I think that was big. The Tigers aggressive base running for sure. That one wasn't a surprise because we saw it with AJ Hinge preaching that mindset all spring, but yeah, it made us look very good. I'm sure there are times we're going to look very bad, very stupid, uh, like when I said Nico Goodrum could end the year as the starting shortstop, I'm already regretting that take, but but uh, we don't have to talk about that one. Now, we'll get to Nico and Jamer as we move through. Uh, we'll give our analysis of the first series for the Detroit Tigers as they open the season in about as good a fashion as one could imagine, although the optics weren't necessarily that great on opening day. And I mean that literally, like you couldn't see. It was snowing at Comerica Park. Miguel Cabrera couldn't even see his first home run of the season, the first home run of the 2021 season. So Cody, you were there, obviously with reduced crowds. Many people were not. What did you think of opening day in Detroit? Yeah, I think literally the optics were bad because it was hard to see on the field. I think for the Tigers, the optics couldn't have been much better because you have the face of your franchise hit a home run on opening day in a snowstorm and he slides into second base and it helps you lead MLB Network and I'm sure it was all over ESPN. Uh, MLB Network did a long segment about the Tigers, probably the most I've seen them talk about the Tigers, you know, other than the day AJ Hinch was hired here in the past couple of years. Um, so that was great. You know, it got you it got you some publicity to be there. Let me just say this. I'm glad I was in the press box, although 
Based on COVID protocols, the press box windows technically have to be open. We got away with just slightly cracking the windows. Uh, MLB don't punish anyone for that, you know. Um, so it was pretty, it was mostly warm up there. And that was a godsend because it was freezing outside. There were 8,000 people in the stands. And someone asked me earlier this week, how many of those people do you think were sober? And I would say, you know, hopefully none of them, like uh, surely at least 7,000 were drunk. Like maybe the, you know, there are probably some children there who I, who I definitely hope are sober. But um, I also know how some of you guys around the Detroit area raise your kids. So you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, I was nice and warm. I got to watch a pretty good baseball game. And by the end of the day, if you didn't know any better, it looked beautiful outside. If you didn't look at the temperature, the sun came out. Uh, Miguel Cabrera also made a diving stop. Matthew Boyd pitched a pretty good game. It was, it was fun. And yeah, for the first time probably ever, you appreciate, not ever, but for the first time in a while, you really appreciate having the fans there. I also tweeted like drunk fans are, are greater than, um, you know, piped in crowd noise and it really was true there was like a heckler yelling at Shane Bieber the whole time like you suck you're a bum we hate you Justin Bieber and a year ago I probably would have found that super annoying but I was up there listening to it like oh this is great like we got some personality in the park today there are people here there's movement and and you really could appreciate it just being in the ballpark did uh Matthew Boyd look like a man pitching with no sleeves <laughs> it's it's you know Matthew Boyd doesn't uh you know he doesn't have like the the Daniel Norris beard or like the Michael Fulmer kind of demeanor but I think he he uh upped his masculinity there by going no sleeves by refusing to wear sleeves he said he he never wore sleeves growing up and he pitched in some cold games up in the Pacific Northwest so he refused to wear sleeves and to his credit uh, it, it was freezing cold outside. His velo was actually probably down as a result. He was kind of lower 90s. But he pitched a pretty good game, especially early. I thought he did a good job getting ahead in counts and was, was more aggressive. That's always when he's at his best. He reverted to kind of dancing around some hitters, actually issued three walks um, toward the middle innings. But he got some good outs. I thought it was, uh, you know, uh, one of the better outings he's had in a while. And for Boyd, certainly... Um, about what you would ask for on opening day probably helps that it was 31 degrees outside. No one was really in the mood to hit, but uh, Tigers got a couple runs off Shane Bieber and Matthew Matthew Boyd did his job. So that's there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So Matthew Boyd's line five and two thirds, three hits, four walks, two strikeouts. Not the prettiest, but I, I will say this before we dive a little bit further into his uh, into his pitching. I gotta say I like his look. Like the baggy pants with the with the tall socks, and he's got his hat tilted a little bit, and he's you know pretty long. I think he is a swagadelic pitcher. He didn't even bring up the spikes, Karen. He's got he's wearing high top white Nike spikes every time. Pretty fly. And in the, in the clubhouse, he's actually he's usually rocking some Jordans or like some Nike basketball shoes. I don't really know where that swagger comes from. Like this is like. Matthew Boyd, he went to Oregon State, he went to like a Catholic school, you know, and he's the kind of the nice guy, very charitable, very Christian, but he does have a little swagger to him. I don't really know where, where that originated. It's interesting. I thought that one of the big moments of the game was him going into the sixth inning because he had, he had started to get a little shaky and AJ sent him back out there. There was a lefty matchup. I can't remember the hitter off the top of my head right now. 
there was a lefty matchup. Rosario. He stayed in and got two outs and didn't leave with a huge jam. I thought that was a very telling thing of AJ. A, let him go out, and B, let him maneuver the inning until it was time to make a change. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about the Tigers opening this season with a no-rolls bullpen is that suddenly every relief decision is fascinating. It's like, who's going to go in the game? You know, what's what's A.J. Hinch thinking? One of the big moments was right before that, in the fifth inning, Hinch allowed Matthew Boyd to stay in the game with two outs right after he had walked a hitter, and Jose Ramirez, your three-hole hitter for the Indians, is coming up. He's a switch hitter, slightly better numbers, really good numbers, 292 career hitter. Um, hitting right-handed. He let the left-handed Boyd stay in and get that out and then sent him back out for the sixth, which I think showed showed a lot of confidence in him. Um, it was probably because Rosario was leading off that inning as a lefty, so he let Boyd go out there. But again, Cisneros starts warming in the bullpen. I start thinking, okay, he's probably just going to let Boyd face Rosario and then pull him. Well, no, he, he lets Boyd stay in there. His pitch count's still manageable. Boyd's looking good. And he gets Franmil Reyes, a really good hitter. He gets him out, then surrenders a single to uh, to Naylor, and then Hinch makes the move with two outs uh, in, in the bullpen to Cisnero. So that was all a fascinating sequence to watch play out. Again, later when we saw when we saw him insert Daniel Norris with two outs, and then Norris got to uh, pitch the entire eighth inning, we, we learned a lot, I think, about A.J. Hinch and his bullpen philosophy just right there. We saw it again later in the weekend. Every single pitching decision is pretty interesting to follow right now. Is AJ tipping his hand at all about what's going into these decisions? Um, I, I don't think he's tipped his hand too much. I think a lot of it has been pretty clear regarding handiness. Um, Julio Tehran, you know, on Saturday, uh, Jose Ramirez was on deck. There were two outs. Julio Tehran is is facing uh, Cesar Hernandez, and it's like, okay, uh, do you make a move to the bullpen to bring in Derek? Ho- they had one guy in the bullpen; it was Derek Holland, a lefty. Do you bring him in and have and have uh, Ramirez hit right? And they didn't have a right hander up. Luckily, that decision was made easy when when Tehran got Hernandez to fly out to in the inning but jose ramirez has made this all all interesting to follow as a switch hitter with good splits from both sides other than that i think he's he's done a lot of handedness things but we've also seen like a willingness to stick with some guys a little bit norris obviously he's longer but he pitched one in a third cisnero pitched one inning that was actually you know the uh the, the final out of the fifth and then two outs in the sixth um, and then in the ninth, I think you've pointed this out, Kieran, he let Gregory Soto stay in there despite a somewhat rocky ninth inning. Yeah, and just to refresh people's memory, Soto gets an out, and then there's that kind of tweener infield single on the next batter, and then, boom, hangs one, and I don't know if that ball has landed yet. That was uh, that, allowed <laughs> the, Perez. That, that allowed the Indians to get within one run, and then he proceeds to get another out, and then he walks a guy, and I thought, oh, AJ, here comes the hook. They they had a mound visit, but they let Soto kind of clean up his own mess. And I thought that and the Boyd decision in the fifth and sixth innings was sort of an example of, hey, you're a major leaguer. Go make a play. You know, go do your job. I tr- I'm trusting you to do your job. And I know it's only a couple games, but 
I feel like that's part of instilling the culture, which we had talked about in a previous episode. Yeah, I think with Soto especially, it's kind of like the benefit of a new staff. And who knows, there's a chance this changes here in like a couple weeks. But I think there were a couple times last year, Ron Gardenhire had a pretty short hook with Soto. Because generally, you can tell pretty soon if you're getting good Soto or bad Soto. But also if you're trying to develop this guy, maybe he has to be able to pitch through the bad a little bit. And that was maybe the first time he's ever kind of done that successfully. We got some indications early on it was going to be bad Soto. And when I looked up after the Perez home run and no one was warming, I was like, wow, okay, he's he's telling him this is your inning no matter what. Granted, they actually got Brian Garcia up um, before the game was over. But uh, Juan Nieves went out for the mound visit. I asked AJ Hinch after the game, you know, any idea what Juan said? And he said, I don't know exactly what he told him, but it was pretty much just you, you got to get a guy to, to calm down, to refocus a little bit, slow things down. So classic opportunity for a mound visit. And then uh, Soto gets a pop out to end the game. Again, not, uh, not Soto's most impressive performance by any means. I actually don't think he generated a single swing and miss which is unlike him and and almost a little bit concerning but i think it's very interesting that hinch had that faith in soto and also that soto definitely didn't have his ace stuff still managed to get out of the inning and 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 keep the win intact it's kind of funny when you look at the the lines from the two starting pitchers because shane bieber you know he gets the l this is why win loss can be kind of (laughs) can, can be kind of bs because he was uh, six innings, three earned runs, and 12 strikeouts. I don't think there's that many games the Tigers have won the previous three years since you've been on the beat, four years maybe, where the starting pitcher gets double-digit strikeouts and they still win the game. I mean, that's I mean, that goes to what we've been talking about, manufacturing runs. And getting, getting on them early, too, I think that's important. Yeah, and uh, like probably ever, if the pitcher's striking out 12, 13 guys... Uh, chances of winning the game seem pretty slim. If you would have read me Shane Bieber's line before the game and said to, and then told me the Tigers won, I probably would have laughed at you. You know, or I would have said, did, did Matthew Boyd pitch the game of his life or something? Because otherwise there's just no way that could happen. But again, we see the A.J. Hinch effect come into play. The Tigers scored the, the run that ended up being the difference in the game early on and it was because of um some good base running by victor reyes you know jacoby jones hits a double in the left field corner and chip hale waves reyes around um you know around third base reyes had reached by the way on a dropped third strike you know he only was on base because he ran that thing out and it was kind of a tweener the ball was in you know somewhat deep left field I thought there was a case to hold Reyes, but uh, Cleveland ends up missing the cutoff, man. It's still a close play at home, but Reyes slides in there safe, and that run ends up defining the game. Uh, I think the Tigers had some other examples of quality base running, uh, both in that game and over the weekend. And and you saw it right there. You saw it pay off on opening day. That culture of pressure, as A.J. Hinch has talked about, um, definitely shown through. Well, they're buying in, and it was one of those things where you weren't going to know if they were going to buy into some of this stuff until it actually came to real games, because one of the more, you know, maybe for lack of a better term, embarrassing things to happen if you're a baseball player is to get thrown out somewhere. Oh, totally. You get thrown get thrown out at home, get thrown out at third, trying to 
uh, go first to third on a single or, you know, stretching a single into a double. I mean, that's that's kind of humbling. And it's not like these guys are gazelles on the base pass. And especially Candelario, he had one on Saturday with, uh, when he scored his run that I was like, he's not a natural runner. That's not really something that uh, he was given a high grade when he was a prospect, I'm pretty sure. But they're throwing that to the wind. They're they're all in on this. And, and if I were to kind of classify most impressive or best signs for the future is that they don't have any misgivings. They're all in on what A.J. Hinch is preaching. Yeah, that's funny you mentioned being thrown out. I think one of the worst feelings, probably the worst feeling when a baseball field is getting picked off, um, which is a little different than getting thrown out, but like getting thrown out, especially if you clearly shouldn't have gone or you ran through a stop sign, there's like a walk of shame back to the dugout, you know, where suddenly all eyes on you and your teammates are like, what's he say? What's he going to say? What's he going to do when he enters the dugout? And, and yeah, you have that walk of shame and, and some people are probably afraid of that. You know, I'm sure it can definitely make some base runners more hesitant. Um, and then of course that's not what we've seen with the Tigers under AJ Hinch. It can be a fine line because like obviously stealing bases is no longer in vogue. And it's like, how do you be aggressive while still being smart? I think some of that comes down to preparation, both your players and your coaches, knowing the opposing team, knowing the arms of opposing outfielders and pop times of catchers and stuff like that. Um, it all, it all kind of melds into one. And I think uh, it's, I don't know, it was interesting to watch all spring and it was cool to see it translate to the actual field here in the opening series. And then on the Saturday game, by that same token, Willie Castro scores with the infield in. Miguel Cabrera hits a, hits a ground ball to the shortstop. It's not like it was a tough play. It just kind of was one foot exactly where it needed to be, where the shortstop couldn't field it and immediately fire it. But Willie was gone. Like he 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 was definitely on contact going, and I, and I was just as impressed with that as I was Victor Reyes rounding in in the opener. I I th- I would almost argue Willie Castro took off a little too soon. Luckily, well, it worked that's out part of it too, him. right? I don't that's know. The gamble. I, and, and he's a major league baseball player, and I'm not. You know, I think you're kind of taught to see the ball down. So a good thing it almost looks like you're going on contact, but as, as soon as you see a somewhat downward trajectory, you're breaking. I think he left even before that. You know, as soon as he heard. Uh, ball hit wood he was going which if Miguel Cabrera hits a liner to short instead of a grounder then then he's doubled up luckily it worked out for him understated base running thing this didn't get as much attention but right before that Willie Castro belts a triple in the gap uh, Jamer Candelario was on first and uh, you know the center fielders tracking down this ball dove came up short I thought Candelario did a great job of recognizing early that that ball was going to be down and not being overly cautious. Um, He took off and it it was scored a triple. It was really kind of a double. The reason Castro got to third is because Candelario ran so aggressively. It was just close enough of a play that they threw the ball. Um, The relay throw came home. It was late, allowed Castro to take third. And then he scores on the Cabrera ground out. So those two instances of good base running, really work together to create two runs that, that set the tone in the first inning. 
Yeah, and he was already around second uh, on the replay. That's one of the things I was looking forward yeah. to. He was already around second before he kind of just made sure. And we're only talking, I don't know, six inches from that ball being caught. And, you know, like I was saying with the ground out that Miguel Cabrera had, there were several instances this series where the bounces went the Tigers' way. And part of that is them creating their opportunities, but then also taking advantage of them. And again, broken record. It's just winning plays, man. It's just winning plays. That's what all they did. It's weird to talk about that in the Detroit Tigers, right? The last two years, there were not many winning plays. Let's not a slight at the players or Ron Gardner or anyone. It's just how it was. We, we saw more winning plays this series than, than it feels like than we've seen in the past two years. Um, just some good baseball. And again, that's what, you know, when people talk about the Hinch Astros, like, yeah, okay, you had the sign-stealing thing. Yeah, you had a super talented core and you traded for Justin Verlander. Yeah, there was all that. Those teams were also just just menacing to play because they they took 90 feet whenever they could get it they were fundamentally sound like the reason the Astros were so good went beyond having talent and it went beyond you know whatever happened with the monitors those teams played really good baseball and we're already seeing a little bit of that translate to Detroit am I wrong for thinking that this aggressive base running mentality to me it feels like old-fashioned so for the Tigers specifically, well, we all know how Ty Cobb used to run the bases. That guy was ag- as aggressive as probably anyone who's played baseball. And then the Cardinals of the pre-World War II area, the Dizzy Dean uh, teams. Gas House Gang. Yeah, the Gas House Gang. Th- I think there was like, I'd run over my grandmother if it meant breaking up a double play. And I think guys would purposely not slide in the second so they could get hit by the, uh, by the ball and, and prevent a double play. I mean really aggressive stuff to me this aggressive base running feels old-fashioned no one really talks about it these days am i wrong there do i have a misconception here uh as long as we're not talking about miguel cabrera uh ducking out of the way on a double play ball as he was heading into second which granted i do not want the 37 year old 30 million dollar guy sliding into second base but he had an opportunity to break up a double play and opted not to Um, but I don't know, like, that's an interesting point. I think there's still plenty of aggressive base running in the game. I think maybe it's almost not glorified as much. Sometimes it's harder, like the, the Candelario thing we just talked about. Sometimes it's harder for the average person to pick up on. And if you're not Ty Cobb sliding in spikes up or Pete Rose, you know, diving into third base head first, like, um, it doesn't always get as much attention, but I think it still happens in the game. Maybe it used to happen more. I, I mean, I don't know. I, it just doesn't I, feel as emphasized. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way to put it. And look, I think there's something to like the culture of being afraid to mess up. Like messing up on the base paths is uh, is not valued. And you get the walk of shame. And it's on TV. And now you have social media. I would not at all be surprised if players are a little more hesitant just because of the fear of making a mistake is probably amplified a little more than it used to be. Yeah, I was just watching the movie 42, and when Branch Rickey tells Jackie that, you know, he's made the club or whatever, or he, I think this is the scene where he's going to go to Montreal, he's telling him, steal, be a lunatic out there. You'll get thrown out. That's fine. You're going to put it in the back of, your, of their heads that what you're capable of. Does AJ 
does he preach the culture of not necessarily worrying about getting thrown out? Do we know if he's sort of made that point to the guys? Um, I don't think he's talked about that super specifically. But again, I think some of this is tied into preparation. I think it also comes down to just making smart decisions, like knowing when to be when to take the extra base. There's a way to do it wisely and there's a way to be dumb about it. Some of it comes down to having good base coaches who are prepared for every situation, who have their own data on, you know, opposing outfielders, who know where guys are positioned, all that. I think those are things that've probably been taught, you know, simple as base runners looking at at uh, where your outfielders are. You're taught to do that in high school, but a lot of players even in the big leagues don't necessarily do it. I think things like that are being emphasized more under this coaching staff. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We're still probably not going to see them steal a ton of bases because that's not really a data-driven decision unless they are very confident that, that their guy is going to be safe. But I also don't think AJ Hinch wants these guys playing scared. And I, I'm sure that message in some way has come through. Like it, it comes back to like the Hinch, like playtime is over thing. Um, if you're talking about winning in the clubhouse, if you're preaching a winning attitude, some of that probably also translates to just being more aggressive when you're on the field and trying to win that game instead of, you know, it's not to be too cliched, but the whole like playing not to lose thing. I think that's very real too. So the Tigers clinched the opening series with a 5-2 win over the Indians on Saturday. Julio Tehran, kind of like Matthew Boyd in the opener, thought he pitched just pretty solid baseball. It wasn't great, uh, but he did obviously enough to put him in position to win and to kind of feel good about his spot in the rotation, I think. Yes, I mean, it's it's very early, but man, he's looked like a pretty good pickup. You got this guy on a minor's deal, and granted, his incentives are up to three or four million, um, you know, if he, if he lasts with the Tigers, but he's looking like a pretty good pickup. His velocity actually wasn't quite what we saw it in spring training. It was closer to 90-91 rather than 92-93. But I've actually seen plenty of Tehran, you know, back with the Braves and I, I grew up a Braves fan and it's interesting. He, you know, he debuted, I think in 2011, wasn't really a, a fixture of that rotation until 2013, but he pitches like, uh, you know, like a Leo Mazzoni guy, the, the old Braves pitching coach and the Maddox Glavin Smoltera, the way he b- works both sides of the plate, you know, just dotting X's kind of across both sides, inside and out that horizontal style of pitching. That's, actually not in style anymore. Now we're going up and down and Chris Fetter's big on that. But I think Tehran's really fun to pitch. He he pitches like the guys I grew up learning about pitching from. Um, and this outing was also very vintage Tehran. He's never been a huge strikeout guy. He does have a filthy slider, but he's more of that pitchability prototype. And he ran into some trouble and he got out of some jams. And you know what? He had a hard hit ball or two that, uh, that, that, fell you know where the tigers had a guy stationed and then you look at it five innings pitch four hits one earned run uh 90 pitches you will take that any time especially if you look at the tigers the past couple years uh one earned run in five innings that's that's about all you can ask for that gives you a shot to win the game so um early on plenty of reason to be encouraged by julio tehran i found this fascinating offensively in that second game Every single Tigers batter either had a hit, a run, or an RBI at, 
except for Nico Goodrum, who was 0 for oh, 4. Well. But talk about even distribution of offensive output. Yeah, well, we'll see how long that one lasts. I mean, if you just look at the order, I think you can see a difference in the quality of bats, the quality of it bats from the first four or five hitters on down. Once you get into even Nomar Mazzara, who had three hits, um, some of his bats have been a little questionable. Godrum and Jones, obviously more free swingers. So you can tell if you're really looking at difference from the top of the order to the bottom of the order, but it's the old, that's why like someone again, you know, we heard this a lot last year. Should Jacoby Jones really be in the nine hole? Well, Jacoby Jones is a very streaky hitter, but when he's hitting well, you know, that, what a bonus that is, uh, to have hitting ninth. And he, he scored a run in the seventh when he, he let off the seventh with a single. And then the lineup wraps around and the Tigers almost bat around that inning, a three run seventh that ends up being the difference in the ball game it's it's obviously super important i don't know again we've been so positive so far on this podcast like what's going on that's how you know it's uh it's early april number one uh, that's a big thing for you as well positivity <laughs> wow what does that mean <laughs> pessimistic cody staven oh i'm a journalist that's uh comes with the territory but so not to be negative i don't know that one through nine is going to contribute all season um, but we saw some good ABs and some some timely hitting, also some really good two out hitting um, from the Tigers on Saturday. All right, so I'm just gonna give this to you and let you gloat. Michael Fulmer, God, did he look like a man on a mission when he came in uh, out of the bullpen? And I know it wasn't in the ninth or whatever, but he looked like a guy who was coming in the ninth inning with a one run lead or a two run lead looking to just mow down dudes. I mean, you called him a bulldog. He looked like a bulldog out there. So you can take a victory lap right here with that. Yeah. One, it was just one inning, but what an inning. If Just in the ballpark, you would have thought it was the ninth from the vibe. Like people were locked in on every pitch. He was pumping some gas, 95, which is, is closer to what he was throwing pre-knee surgery, pre-Tommy John. His, he had the slider working. He mi- mixed in some different pitches. Um, you know, got a strikeout, 14 pitches, and he was out of there, like just made it look easy. And it's something about, I think his demeanor, like he's an intense guy. He's a, he's a big guy. He can be a little intimidating to face. He's um, violent with the way he he's throws. violent and his delivery is back to being a little more violent. Hopefully not to the point he hurts his knee again, but he's talked about messing with his mechanics last year. He almost simplified them too much. They were very clean and smooth and, he was throwing 92 with no life on his pitches. He's back to driving off that back leg a little more, and you hope it stays healthy. But you could tell even just from that, um, you could see the difference, the violence in his delivery, the intensity he was bringing in the mound. And, yeah, I started hearing it on, on Twitter, The like, oh, wow, could this guy be a closer? And, look, I'm sure we're a while away from that actually happening, but I'm sure there were some people in the Tigers' dugout who at least had the same thought enter their mind if he keeps pitching like that um, you've got yourself a heck of a reliever and i i'm sure fulmer wants to start again but jim price said this on the radio it looks like maybe he's found a home he really does look like a guy who has found a home in the bullpen based on what we saw his last two spring training outings and then today it allows him to be intense go all out for for an inning and and i kind of think that suits him another of note from the saturday game jonathan scope looked like 
a natural first baseman, and that and that's the first time he's ever played first base in a major league game. He looked comfortable as hell, even getting that uh that foul ball uh, pop out where he had to kind of judge the railing or whatever. That's not something that he's ever really had to do. But like I said, he looked like a natural scoop, turn a double play. I was impressed. I, I have no, I have no misgivings about him being at first base, uh, skill wise. Yeah, to me, he didn't look like a natural first baseman. He looked like a second baseman playing first base in a good way. <laughs> Better than, which granted, okay. Nico Goodrum is not a very good first baseman. His footwork isn't good. He struggled with how to position himself on the bag. Uh, but like that double play turn, scope turned to that double play, picked a ball, pivoted through like a second baseman quick. You never see a first baseman turn a double play three, six, three that quickly. He did a nice job playing in some foul territory, a part of the field. He's never really, you know, been on, he's never been over by the dugout railing before. And he handled that nicely. So that was, that was fairly nice, but it was, it was cool. I mean, this is a guy who got some, some gold glove consideration, at second base, my instinct is like, why would you move a plus defensive second baseman to first? But we sure saw it work out a little bit when you have a guy like Nico Goodrum, who at least if he's hitting, can handle second base pretty well defensively too. And then Scope looked very good at first base. He he made another uh, pick on a double play ball. Granted, it was actually a pretty, pretty easy bounce, um, but he did. He took to that position more naturally than I think Nico Goodrum ever has i think it was very encouraging so yeah that was scope's first career appearance at first base that was michael fulmer's first career relief appearance uh two pretty good firsts right there and the first two oh season start since what 2016 since 2016 uh here's a fun one i i'm not gonna put this on twitter because i don't want to get people too hyped up aj hinge only once in his managerial career has he started two and up and it was 2017 the year the houston astros won the world series <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I have a uh, history of the Detroit Tigers uh, book that I've owned for many years. And one of the things that they talk about with the 68 team is like all those like 50-50 balls kind of bouncing their way. When they're hitting, they get inside the line. The opponents hit them outside the line. They get those in-between balls in the field. And then the next year, none of them went the Tigers' way. So it's funny. We just compared we just compared this team to two World Series championship teams. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what we're doing. It's early April, but it is funny sometimes. I, sometimes I want if you don't believe in God, maybe you haven't watched enough baseball. Because as much as you like to think it's all chance, that difference between the ball that's fair and the ball that's foul, the ball that you know gets through the infield and the ball that doesn't. Sometimes it seems like something a little supernatural is going on, and it does. It feels like. You know, when it's your year, it happens for you all the time. And when it's not, you never get a good break. It's 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 very funny and, and weird to watch. Oh, and also, Cody, there's another addition to the Detroit Tigers clubhouse in the form of a wrestling slash UFC slash boxing championship style belt. What is that all about? All right. We got two belts, Kieran. One is a WWE belt and one is a UFC belt. They were both purchased uh, by Derek Holland, and these weren't things he just like went to Walmart to get. I'm pretty sure he dropped uh, some serious change to get some pretty authentic-looking title belts. Okay, so it goes to the player of the game and the pitcher of the game. These are both going to be awarded um, theoretically every game or at least every win throughout the season. I think the most interesting thing about it, someone asked Holland Saturday morning, 
Like, when did you buy the belts? How were you, were you able to get them so quickly? Because this guy didn't know if he was going to be on the team at the start of spring training. They were calling and said, after my second spring training outing, I was feeling good. I thought I was going to make the team. I bet on myself a little bit, and I ordered the belts. So that's that's kind of a cool story. It speaks to Holland's experience. He's been around. He's played with the the Rangers, the uh, the White Sox, the Giants, the Pirates. He's done this at a couple of other stops. He is a big wrestling fan, which is kind of funny. And that kind of gave him the idea. It's just something fun for the team to do after the game. You award a player the game. It sounds like the first game, right, they had like a, a team vote. And now, you know, whoever won the belt previously gets to award it the next day, which I wonder who's going to be the first guy to award it to themselves if they have like another good game. I think that's pretty funny to think about. Um, and then also funny, they, they've, you know, brought it to their post-game Zoom interviews, you know, wearing it around their shoulder. Um I think the WWE one says Macho Man and, and, you know, Julio Tehran brought it on and as he walked off, he's like, Macho Man. So it's pretty funny. It's one of those things that uh, I'm probably, as a pessimist, I'm probably going to be really tired of hearing about by like May, you know, when it's like for the millionth time you have, uh, you know, like one of the TV guys being like, what does this belt mean for the locker room camaraderie? But for now, it is fun, and I do think it, it shows, like, uh, it is a, a cool team bonding thing to have. It shows you what having Holland around brings to your locker room a little bit, and definitely something that, that a lot of people are talking about here early in the season. And it should be noted that Derek Holland's nickname when he came up with the Texas Rangers, I put this on Twitter, but we like to discuss nicknames. He was referred to as the Dutch Oven, that's, that's and, his name on Twitter still. Yeah, and so I think that needs to get its way into the Detroit Tigers fandom vernacular. It's just referred to him as the Dutch Oven because I actually really like that nickname. Yeah, it was good, and he was he was definitely known as that. Uh, I actually spent just a little bit of time around him uh, when I was covering the Rangers for an MLB.com internship in 2015. He was actually hurt that year, but... Um, I think he did a couple scrums with the media, and he, he was a favorite among those guys. The Dutch Oven nickname, I think everyone called him that or some kind of version of it. So, yeah, definitely. I'll have to start throwing that out there as well. The Dutch Oven, we got to get on board with that. Now, the Tigers did drop the series finale 9-3 to to the Indians, but they took 2 out of 3, won the series. I don't know if really anyone cares all that much, considering you get the first two, you win the series, and Akil Badu stole the show and i gotta be honest is he the only one who doesn't realize what he's doing shouldn't be happening like does he just have this amnesia because i'm trying i'm trying to figure out to explain this to other people who don't follow the tigers closely or don't follow baseball closely how crazy this is like my my fiance is a veterinarian so i think it's like if she had to perform a spay like one semester in the veterinarian school Hitting a home run on your first uh, first pitch of your first major league at bat when you haven't played above high A. I mean, I'm I'm the loss for words, Cody. Yeah, it's kind of like writing a masterful feature story when uh, you don't really know your whole alphabet yet. <laughs> like, no, I don't know, Kieran. We're recording this on Easter Sunday, and and I have seen the light. I've witnessed an incredible event today. Kilbadu, not just his first at bat, the first pitch he has ever seen above. The high A level where he hit 214, he takes it opposite field for a no doubt home run. He flips his bat. It was uh, it was pretty incredible to watch. I think everyone in the press box was just kind of looked at each other and they're like, no way, like this, 
this can't keep happening. And then when he pops out in his second at bat, it was like, oh, like, I guess he can get out. I guess he doesn't just only hit home He's runs. human. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, it, it's been crazy to watch and you keep doubting him and you keep thinking, okay, the, the rug's going to get pulled out from under him at some point, but we're into the season now and the guy has an official big league hit, an official big league home run. He still has a long way to go, but it's really become a heck of a story and the, the Comerica Park crowd already loves him. They were chanting kind of like Badu, you know, which almost sounds like a boo. It's not. They love this guy. Uh, so excited to see how it plays out into the future. We talked about Matthew Boyd style earlier. It should also be noted that Badu pimped that bad boy when he hit it. Opposite field too, which I think adds some uh, credibility. He pimped the homer. He was rocking the white spikes a la Boyd. He had a white sleeve going down one arm. You know, just looked like this is the guy who talks about watching video of King Griffey Jr. and Barry Bonds, and he was he was rocking their swagger uh, for his MLD, MLB debut. So I've been skeptical about Badu this whole time, but he's, I mean, he's finally won me over. How can you not like the guy? He's, he's become a really fun interview as well. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, like I can't deny it anymore. I'm, I'm rooting for this kid to have success. We'll see what happens. Uh, it's, it's been crazy and incredible to follow. Another young guy that was getting his chance today, Tarek Skubal, five and a third, four hits, two runs, both earned, two walks, four strikeouts. What'd you make of him on the mound today? Yeah, I thought he was pretty good. Not quite great but you look at that final line again we, we talked about this with julio terron like uh two earned runs over five and a third from a tiger starter that's really good like you'll take that pretty much any time he gave his ch- team a chance to win the ball game his fastball rides through the zone so well it's very impressive he was still throwing about 60 percent fastball um, and that was really kind of his bread and butter he did a good job getting ahead early in the game um, I think there's some times you can still see he's not always the most economical with his pitches. Sometimes you'd like to see him just put a guy away. He didn't really have that splitter going for him today. He actually threw, I think, I think the highest slider percentage he's ever thrown in his career. Um, granted, only a handful of starts in the in the majors. Uh, but the slider, I didn't think had incredible bite. Um, you still saw glimpses of some dominant stuff, and I think more importantly, you saw a guy who was probably able to have a really good game without his true, um, you know, A stuff, which I think can be the test of being a good starter in the major leagues. Do you know how to pitch? Can you work if you don't have three different pitches all firing on all cylinders? Scooble makes it look easy when that with that fastball, when he's pumping it through the zone. He continues to be very fun to watch uh, and, and also showed looks of a guy who can still get a whole lot better, which is actually kind of scary to think about. Now, earlier we had talked about A.J. Hinch sticking with guys. And the first two games, we saw examples of that working. Today, we kind of saw the backside of that. Whereas sometimes you might stick with a guy too long and you, at the blink of an eye, you're down three, four runs. And, and that happened to Daniel Norris today. What, 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 went, what was that sequence like? Yeah, that definitely happened in Norris in the seventh, and he came on to relieve for Scooble with a runner in scoring position. I think two runners on in the in the bottom of the sixth, and he was icy again. He gets a ground out and then a strikeout. He comes back out for the seventh, and I don't know. It seemed to me like 
one of those things where the seventh inning was going to be Norris's no matter what, because he gives up a single to Ahmed Rosario. He walks Naylor. He gives up another single, um, a, a two RBI single that puts Cleveland ahead. So the Tigers are like that. Boom. You're down four, three. Um, and I look to the bullpen and no one's warming and I'm kind of thinking, uh, okay, what's going on? And then shortly after I, I noticed that Buck Farmer gets up, but there's no way Farmer could have been close to warm, even if they had taken a mound visit, which they didn't. By the time the lineup rules rolls over and it rolls over to Jordan Luplow, who's a 375 career hitter against left-handers. He's not a very good career hitter against right-handers. So he's in here facing the left-handed Norris and he hits a bomb to left field two more runs score, suddenly it's 6-3, and the Tigers never really recovered. Norris still stayed in. I think at that point, he just kind of had to wear it a little bit, but he still stays in to finish the seventh, and we don't see Farmer until the eighth. Um, didn't get a great explanation of A.J. Hinch's thinking there, and that's one where it's the third game of the regular season. As a reporter, what's the best way to try to get into his mindset without making it seem like you're second-guessing him, you know, because... Although I probably would have had someone warming for Norris as soon as he allows that second or third base runner, I'm sure Hinch had had his reason and, and you know, I'm not going to try to criticize the guy too much. It's the third game of the regular season. Um, but I, I am I kind of remain curious now sitting here a few hours after the game thinking, okay, what went into that one? And actually, if you look back, I think it's a similar philosophy like we saw on opening day. He was going to stick with Daniel Norris. He wanted to see Norris, who has some length, who's been a starter, work out of some trouble, and it just didn't happen. And, you know, like that, you lose the game. We've talked about Daniel Norris a pretty good bit over the course of starting this podcast. And I hope, and I don't know, obviously I've never talked with him like you have in the locker room or otherwise. I hope he doesn't kind of spiral after we've, sort of hyped him up. I mean, remember my bold prediction was he's going to get a chance to start again. I think he's going to be viable. And yeah, we're only one series in. I'm not overreacting, but I just hope that he is able to bounce back mentally from this. Because I think physically he's still there, which we haven't always been able to say. I hope mentally he can bounce back. Yeah, Daniel's definitely a thinker, probably an overthinker. But I think the good news is his first two batters he faced he looked really good. He got out of the big spot in the sixth. Even if he gets pulled before Luplo, he goes one in, um, you know, one in a third, and he allows, you know, two runs, which isn't great, but it's not like this disastrous outing. I think part of that's he was in the game when he probably shouldn't have been in the game. So hopefully, going forward, the coaching staff can also figure out how to best use him, when to best use him. Um, and, and that can help him out mentally too. You have to put your guys in positions to succeed. Granted, Nor- Norris has been a starter, so he should be able to face anyone in any lineup. But he was in a rough spot there. Um, I, I, I think you know. I hope he will be just fine mentally. He still flashed some good stuff today. He just left a couple pitches over the plate, and they really got hammered. And you know what? It should be noted that. There's no off day tomorrow. They don't have an off day till Thursday, and then it's just one day, and then, you know, go into a weekend series against Cleveland again, actually. So maybe that played into A.J. Hinch's thinking a little bit. 
I, I think so. I'm sure he's uh, trying to keep some of these guys fresh. And I should note, Kieran, Norris's fastball velocity was down a little bit today. I think he uh, topped out at 92 and, and was averaging around 91, whereas I'd kind of like to see him closer to 93, 94. So I'm not sure exactly what was behind that. It was a warm day. Um, so maybe that's a little bit of a cause for concern. I, I don't know. It's something to watch going forward. But, again, Norris was also throwing for the second time already this season, something he's he's not really used to doing. We would be remiss if we didn't mention the greatest hitter in Detroit Tigers history who's never recorded a hit. Well, I was going to say who hasn't recorded a hit, and that would be Robbie Grossman. He's the most loved player <laughs> I've ever seen for uh, going over except for, was it, seven walks to open the... Eight. He's, he's up, up to, to eight. eight. Eight walks to open the season. That's only three games. I am actually am impressed with his approach, and I, I'm saying tongue-in-cheek with the whole he hasn't recorded a hit thing. I think he is a valuable member of the lineup, especially at the leadoff spot. I really like him there. But best hitter who's never recorded a hit, tell me something, someone better. Uh, Robbie Grossman is the only Detroit Tiger to ever walk eight times in the club's first three games of the season. He's the first major league player to do that since some guy from the 91 Yankees that I've never heard of. So yeah, pretty impressive feat. The guy's getting on base a ton. Uh, pretty funny. Evan Woodbury of M live tagged me on Twitter and said, you know, Robbie Grossman's still hitless as a Tiger. And then you got some people on Twitter, and it was kind of hard to tell who was being sarcastic and who wasn't. And, you know, someone's like, ah, oh, another terrible Avila edition. And then you kind of get some fighting. It's like, no, you idiot. He's walked eight times. And it kind of became this whole little thing. Um, it's It's been fun to watch him walk, which I'm, I might be about one of the only people to say. But I like walks, especially after having not seen very many of them the past couple of years. Grossman's been having real good ABs. And um, Dan Hasey, my friend, he's the uh, announcer over at West Michigan. I thought he made a great point on Twitter. Having a good plate approach is about more than walks. Walks are about more than walks. If you are a hitter capable of drawing walks, you're going deep in counts, you're wearing down the opposing pitcher, you're laying off bad pitches, you're swinging at good pitches. So this type of approach we're seeing from Grossman will probably lead to some hits. And, and if he's ahead in the count or swinging at good pitches, you know, maybe a little bit of hitting for power here in the near future. So by the time this podcast publishes, there will be content from you on The Athletic. Why don't you uh, tease what, what, what you've written from the opening series for the Tigers? Yeah, it's been uh, a long Easter Sunday here of working and writing and now recording. So we've got a, st- a story on the man, Akil Badu, why he watches video of King Griffey, Barry Bonds, Willie Mays, some more from his Homer today. Um, And then a lot of the stuff we've talked about on this podcast. Honestly, if you've listened to this whole podcast, it's going to be kind of repetitive because it's where I got a lot of the ideas. But 10 thoughts, 10 takeaways from the opening series. And a fun note, the Tigers, for some reason, they're not publicizing this a lot. They're going to honor Al Kaline on Tuesday. Tuesday is the one-year anniversary of Al Kaline's death. They will have a small ceremony at Comerica Park. It sounds like some of Kaline's family will be in attendance. So that is something to uh, to look forward to this week. All right, well, looking forward to reading that. Looking forward to watching a full slate of games this week. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TurnCornerPod. He is at Cody Stavenhagen. I am at Kieran underscore Steckley. Please, if you like the show, subscribe, rate, review. We really appreciate it. And Cody, we'll talk to you next week. 
All right, let's do it.